Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Mommy, why is Daddy talking funny? What do you mean? Good morrow, my ladies. How doth thou fare? Mommy, I'm scared. You should be. Well, my lord, and you? I? I could not be better. At my side is my faithful steed. You mean the Pekingese? Yes, and in my hand is my steel, my sword, my Excalibur, my Harry's. Another great shave today? Verily, another great shave. Okay, all my listeners, it's crunch time. The holiday season is finally here, which means, if you're like me, you're probably beginning to stress out over that guy in your family who's impossible to shop for. Is it your dad, your brother? You can tell me. Need a secret Santa gift for a coworker? If I told you to get them shaving supplies as a gift, you'd probably call me a dumkoff. But you have to trust me on this. Go to harrys.com and check out their shaving sets. But first, since you're on the site... Get something for yourself, because these shaving kits are awesome. Then go ahead and get one for that hard-to-shop-for guy. And while you're there, get one for every other guy in your list. And after they hugged you, you can thank me for the suggestion and apologize for hurting my feelings. Now, as much as I love my Harry's, their holiday set, which I recently got, is even better. Believe it or not, it comes with a copper-plated razor handle, extra stylish, a couple of five-blade cartridges, shaving cream that smells and feels great, it really, really does, and a cool travel kit to hold everything in when on the move. And if you're like me and couldn't wrap a package to save your life, even the box it comes in looks great. So you're done as soon as it arrives. I'm telling you, Harry's razors are incredibly high quality. All their products look extremely sleek, and the best part is, What would cost you an arm and a leg with some of their competitors will cost you less than half with Harry's. And if you are buying these as gifts, make sure to check out their limited edition gift sets right now that not only deliver the amazing quality and value that Harry's has become known for, but they look fantastic. Honestly, guys, this is gift giving for your dad, brother, co-worker, whoever, made easy. It's the best shave I've had in a long time. Really, ever. And this is my favorite part. You can avoid that aimless trip to the mall, where you'll end up with some socks and a tie that the guy's already got. Check out harrys.com, get a few gifts, and treat yourself while you're at it. Their holiday shaving sets start at $15, and even those are super nice. But as a special offer for my listeners, Harry's will give you $5 off your first purchase when you go to harrys.com and enter the promo code WWII. And for those of you who care about the world we live in, Harry's not only makes its own really high quality grooming products, but they also give 1% of their sales and 1% of their time back to the communities they serve. So you can feel good about a gift that gives back. What it comes down to is the clock is ticking. December is here, and finding the perfect gift from Harry's couldn't be easier. And you avoid the caffeine-driven crowds at the mall. 
Just know that Harry's.com is streamlined and easy to use. It takes less than 30 seconds to place an order, really, and their great customer service is there to support you and your purchase. And listen to this. Until December 8th, but you need to go to Harry's.com right now, as a special offer for my listeners, Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with the code WWII. Don't wait. Free shipping for the holidays ends on December 10th. So act now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Don't forget to use my code WWII. Harry's makes every morning feel like a holiday. Why wouldn't you want to share that? Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 146, The Siege of Leningrad, Part 3. The closer the Germans got to Leningrad, the slower and more bloody their advance became. In July, the attackers averaged some 5 kilometers, or 3.1 miles a day. In August, that shrank to 2.2 kilometers, or 1.7 miles a day and then to just one-fourth of a kilometer, or just under 90% of a mile, a day. The Russians were stubborn, but the Germans were determined. Which caused each side's casualty lists to surge. Yet the city was still free of Hitler's grasp by the end of September, though barely. No one in a Soviet uniform was counting their chickens. But de Fuhrer had had enough As the directive of September 22nd made clear, the Fuhrer has decided to erase the city of Petersburg from the face of the earth. I have no interest in the further existence of this large city after the defeat of Soviet Russia. We propose to blockade the city tightly and erase it from the earth by means of artillery fire and continuous bombardment from the air. And that was to be the city's fate. Yet, there was one flaw to this declaration. Leningrad was not truly surrounded, not completely cut off from the rest of Russia. Once Lake Ladoga froze, supplies and reinforcements could come across it, and part of the area to the south and southeast of the lake was still in Soviet hands. That was unacceptable. Those routes could keep the city alive. Hitler needed this situation over, or at least, contained. As he later told Mussolini, if he had known of the second and third defensive rings between himself and Moscow, he never would have launched Barbarossa. But once something like this was done, it could not be undone. The German leader could not imagine Stalin making any kind of agreement to stop hostilities and allow the Germans to keep what they had won in battle thus far. No, this was a contest to the end, the complete end, of one of the adversaries. And Lieb had his orders. The city was to be truly cut off from help before winter. Yet the weather was already changing, and now he had fewer men, as Moscow absorbed Hitler's mind, and therefore Lieb's 4th Panzer Group. With it gone, Lieb was down to some 53 divisions, of which two were panzer and another two motorized, and seven brigades, 
But this last group was farther to the west of Leningrad, dealing with the enemy forces in Estonia. Lieb, for his part, knew he could not go over to the offensive with what he had now. Luckily or not, he wasn't replaced for his lack of energy. Instead, a conversation was started that basically went like this. Okay, well, what can be done now, before winter, to bring Leningrad to its knees? Down the road. Lieb had two options ready, and he presented them to Berlin. He could either destroy the Iranian bomb bridgehead to the southwest of Leningrad, thus removing a potential threat to his left flank, or he could move out from Chudovo, along the Volkov River, some 80 miles southeast of Leningrad, in a northwesterly direction, and make for Volkov proper, just below and to right of center of Ladoga. This would allow him to engage and hopefully destroy the Soviet 54th Army and cut off this Soviet corridor and, if all went well, truly link up with the Finns to the southeast corner of the lake. This latest offensive could begin, according to his calculations, as early as October 6th. To this, Hitler said yes and no. De Fuhrer pointed out, rightly so, of the poor terrain a straight line would take the panzers through. Instead, the advance would start at Choduvo, as Lieb envisioned, and head northeast, but along a more southern route. This would take Schmidt's 39th Motorized Corps, strengthened with additional infantry, to Tivkin, located some 60 miles or 96 kilometers southeast of Ladoga's southeast corner. Then the attacking force would turn northwest and make for Volkov, using the roads and the rail line there. Thus, the Soviet 54th Army at Volkov would be trapped and then destroyed. That this took the German force, not nearly large enough for such an adventure, twice as far as Lieb's plan, did not matter. The supreme commander of the German forces had deemed it so. Ten days after Lieb would have launched his more realistic assault, Schmidt's 39th Motorized Corps set out for Tiefkin. On that same day, October 16th, infantry units made their way on a more northerly route from Kurishi, about halfway between Chudovo and Volkov, towards the latter city. If this worked according to plan, not only would the 54th fall not only would the city they protected fall, not only would this direct line and rail to Lake Ladoga be cut, but the enemy would be pushed that much farther away from Lieb's main force to the south and southwest of Leningrad. On the other side, Stalin could guess what was coming. It was bad enough that the Germans were coming hard at Moscow in the form of Operation Typhoon, but if the northern front collapsed, then defending the capital would become that much harder, as its northern approach would be open. And the answer to all of Stalin's immediate problems, the northern front, Leningrad, German forces from Army Group North coming to help with the drive towards Moscow, the Germans linking up with the Finns, could be solved to a degree with the successful defense of Leningrad. If he could get that city to hold out 
what's more, continue on with its counterattacks, then the North stayed viable. A linking up of his enemies could not happen, and it would be harder for the Germans to justify sending forces to strengthen Army Group Center. Again, if Leningrad held out. But it was about to get harder. With the Germans renewing their drive towards Moscow in early October, Stalin pulled Zhukov, who certainly deserved credit for saving Leningrad thus far, to now reorganize the Western and Reserve fronts, as they were about to be tested as never before. Before Zhukov left, he put in his place the trusted Fudiensky and made it clear to him that Stalin would expect the counterattacks to continue. To prove this, though Zhukov trusted Fudiensky, Stalin had to have his own representative there, so sent out Deputy People's Commissar of Defense and the Chief of Red Army Air Force Defense, Colonel General Voronov. The question Voronov brought with him was, after the German attacks and the subsequent Soviet counterattacks of September, did the Leningrad Front have enough manpower to attack again and break up the developing ring around it? So Fudiensky and Voronov looked over their tactical situation. To the north and west of Leningrad, the Soviet 23rd Army held the line, though they were only 30 kilometers, or almost 19 miles, from the city's edges. The 8th Army was cut off at Oranienbaum, further west. The 42nd and 55th Armies held the line south of the city. And the Neva Operational Group, or NOG, was strung along the Neva River in between the city and Ladoga. Just to the east of that was a narrowly controlled German corridor that touched Lake Ladoga, and just to the east or right of that was the Soviet 54th Army, which occasionally launched attacks west towards Sinyavino to keep the Germans there honest and pinned down, so they could not help attack Leningrad. This left the 4th and 52nd Armies to defend against the Germans, trying to come any further eastward from the area south of Leningrad, along the Volkhov River, all the way down to Lake Ilmen. That was the situation, and the Stavka, or rather Stalin, believed there were enough men to maintain their defensive positions while launching their own offensive. The idea was to destroy the German forces around Schlüsselburg, located in the narrow German corridor that came up from the south of Leningrad and reached the bottom left corner of Lake Ladoga. If that area could be retaken, then there would be, once again, a direct land-based connection between Moscow and Leningrad, which would change the latter city's description from an albatross around Stalin's neck to an anchor that attached Army Group North and Army Group Center, slowing their advances east. This decision to attack came from Stalin on October 12th, just six days after Lieb would have already launched his attack, had he been given permission. As it stood now, this latest Russian offensive, which would begin on October 20th, would not be until four days after Hitler's altered plan of Liebs was to commence. Either way, it would be the Germans setting out first, leaving the Russians to do 
as they had done during most of this war, playing defense. And while not playing it well, the Russian soldiers had taken many German lives with them. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me, switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. The Russian October 20th counterattack, also called the Tivkin Offensive, consisted of the Eastern Sector Operational Group, or ESOG, which would use Lazarov's 55th Army, located to the east of the city, along with the front reserves of five rifle divisions, two tank brigades, and one tank battalion, to strike further east, cross the Neva River, and make for Siniavino, and link up with the 54th Army, which had three rifle divisions and two tank brigades, which would be coming east to join them, hopefully destroying any German forces caught in between. Meanwhile, the NOG group, made up of the 115th Rifle Division and the 4th Naval Infantry Brigade, also to the east of the city, but more to the south, would join the 55th Army and protect its left flank, while it surged east, brushing against the bottom of Ladoga. When this was done, the three converging armies would work together to destroy all enemy forces near Schlüsselburg, which would cut off the top of the German corridor and allow the Russians to reform their defensive line from Leningrad, the Neva River, heading southeast, and join up with the Soviet defensive line to the southeast of Ladoga. Such was the plan to save Leningrad and, indirectly, Moscow, as the Germans would be forced to keep many forces in the area, which would weaken Army Group Center. So, the planning was done, Fedinsky hoping to please Stalin for professional and personal reasons, simply wanting to stay alive, would be coming at the Germans with nine rifle divisions, one rifle brigade, four tank brigades, and a separate tank battalion. In total, some 70,000 men, 97 tanks, 59 of which were the heavy KVs, 470 guns, and Kyusha rocket launchers, and aircraft from the Baltic fleet. Facing them would be 54,000 enemy soldiers, but they were well dug in. They had 450 guns, but no tanks. All German armor in the area would be a part of the coming German offensive. But the main factor was that the Germans struck first. On October 16th, the Germans set out, first to cross the Volkhov River, about 30 miles or 40 kilometers to the north of Lake Ilmen, and then make for Tifkin, in a northeasterly direction. Defending the eastern bank of the Volkhov River were five rifle divisions, one cavalry division, one tank battalion, five artillery regiments, and one anti-tank regiment of the 54th Army. It would not be enough. Yet 
Despite the German successful crossing of the Volkhoff, Stalin still wanted their plans to move forward. The Germans to the south were the problem of the Soviet forces along the river. So, the Soviet forces to the north, just below Ladoga, moved out, heading west. But the Russians were not as successful as the penetrating Germans to their south. For the first three days, the Soviet position to the right of the German corridor barely changed. But despite this, Stalin still expected Fudiansky to continue and accomplish his mission. Yet nothing changed for the Soviets there, but at least five German divisions were now tied down near the German corridor. As stated, the soldiers of the 21st and 126th Infantry Divisions pushed the Russians back from the Volkhov River to the south and headed northeast. Just behind them were the 12th Panzer and 20th Motorized Divisions. The Soviet 4th Army tried to hold them back, but found themselves having to move quickly east or northeast to stay ahead of the attackers. And now that the Germans were across the Volkhov, they spread out, but still headed in a general northeasterly direction. Yet their advance was slowed, not because of Russian bravery, but because of the horrible or non-existent road conditions and a few inches of snow. Resupplying the advancing forces became more difficult the further they spread out. One week into the offensive, the German attack was a mixed bag of results. The 12th Panzer and 20th Motorized Divisions captured Bodugosh on their way to Tifkin, but the Russian 258th and 311th Rifle Divisions of the 4th Army stopped the German 11th Infantry Division by October 24th. A bit further south, the 18th Motorized and the 126th Infantry Divisions forced the Soviet 52nd Army to fall back to the southeast. Things were not going exactly Lieb's way, but still, Tefkin was threatened. The Stavka saw this, panicked, and so strengthened the 4th and 52nd Armies with six more rifle divisions and one tank division. The bulk of these reinforcements were put in between the closest Germans to Tevkin and the target city. And now that the defenders were stronger, their new orders, one could easily argue unrealistic, were to stop the German advance and push them back, back across the Volkhov. During this, Stalin wanted the 54th Army to keep advancing west and close the German corridor. He honestly had no faith in this happening now, but wanted those German troops there tied down. Which was the only bright spot, because Iakovlev, the commander of the reinforced 4th Army, sent in his new forces, piecemeal, as opposed to sending in an overwhelming force against the Germans at some point in their line, which would have forced the entire line to fall back to protect their flanks. To make it worse, these forces, sent in singularly, were not well coordinated, which ended up giving Schmidt's corps the dubious headache of having to deal with just under 13,000 new prisoners of war. Just south of this Soviet debacle, the 52nd Army managed to slow down the German 8th Panzer 
and 18th motorized divisions long enough to establish new defensive lines, which brought the closest German forces to Tevkin, but still west of the city, to halt by October 27th. This forced Schmidt to gather his 8th Panzer and 18th motorized divisions together to strengthen their punching power. But to make sure their left flank was secure, the last thing he needed was the surprise of another Soviet army no one had ever heard of before, attacking. Schmidt then took his 11th Infantry Division and a part of the 21st Infantry, put them together, and had them head north towards Volkov. They would never get that far, Schmidt reasoned, but perhaps the Russians would pull some of their men from this new defensive line to help. But in war, there is always politics. As October moved apace, but his latest attack did not, Lieb met with Hitler at his Wolf's Lair headquarters. Lieb asked that Army Group Center support him by attacking north to get in behind Tivkin. But Hitler was now mesmerized by Moscow. He wanted Stalin to flee his city. There would be no help from Army Group Center. The best Lieb's leader could do was to cancel the attack against the Iranian bomb bridgehead, which freed up three divisions. But still, Lieb, obviously tired and probably seeking to be replaced, but honorably so, told Defur that he doubted Tifkin would be taken. That may be, Hitler rejoined, but he wanted the offensive continued regardless. Having lost too many soldiers and having nothing to show for it, on October 28th, the Stavka ordered Fudinsky's 54th Army to stop trying to make their way west towards Sinigavino and the German Corridor. Instead, they were to send some units east to help protect Volkov. As the German plan to push towards Tevkin and then turn back northwest to march on Volkov became apparent. And now that they had failed to close the corridor, the Stavka and Stalin were worried. Having lost the men they did, with the Germans still close to closing off the city, the Soviet leadership knew their defenses were now that much weaker, and if the Germans succeeded in their latest operation, Leningrad would be cut off, which would see the entire Russian defensive position begin to unravel. But Stalin was a fighter. Before October was over, he directed the Stavka to plan other counterattacks to relieve the pressure of the Germans who were attempting to reach Tivkin. What's more, the Germans sent north were somehow coming ever closer to Volkov, just below Ladoga. But first things first. The 4th Army, stationed southwest of Tivkin and south of the current German threat, were ordered to send in two formations of two divisions each to hit the most advanced German spearhead on its southern flank, and the attack was launched on November 2nd. But after four days of intense fighting, they were taking on German armor and artillery units after all. The offensive was called off. All it was doing was wasting Soviet lives. On November 6th, the blast of a cold front moved in, which froze the various rivers and streams ahead of the Germans. 
Schmidt had his corps use these naturally made bridges to keep his offensive going. The Russians had not bothered him much with their weak counterattack from the south. So the 12th Panzer, now strengthened by the support of the 8th Panzer and 18th Motorized Divisions, pushed on, scattering the 191st Rifle Division, the last line of defense before Tivkin, and took the city on November 8th. The snowstorm that day did not bother Schmidt any more than the Russians had. But that was about to change. Now the last rail line from Moscow to Leningrad was cut. But Schmidt had more good news to send to Lieb to help with his situation with Hitler. The victorious German attack had also captured some 20,000 prisoners and taken 96 tanks, 179 guns, and an armored train. But now came General Winter. Schmidt's men had won the day, but they were now exhausted, and the cold air now settled itself among the Germans. Their tanks and trucks were suffering from the drop in temperature, but of more importance, even before Tevkin fell, as the temperature had dropped to minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, Schmidt had lost some of his men during the night, who had simply frozen to death. The way the German offensive had worked out, they now controlled a bulge within Soviet territory. So the Germans at or near Tevkin were exhausted, their machines were acting up due to the temperature, and they found themselves surrounded on three sides by enemy forces. On the plus side for the Germans, Group von Buchmann, the one-and-a-half infantry divisions sent north to Volkhoff, though they were never expected to reach their target, had, by advancing cautiously, finally come to within 14 kilometers, or just shy of nine miles, from the city. But then the Russian winner hit them, and their advance seemed to be, and probably was, frozen in place. By November 8th, neither German advance could move. Schmidt's men at Tivkin had to go on the defensive to keep what men weren't dying of exposure safe from the Russians, and Group von Buchmann started losing more men to the Russian cold than Russian soldiers. As things stood now, the Germans were close to Volkov, but the Soviet 54th Army still stood in their way, and the Germans that had taken Tivkin weren't going anywhere now, and were overextended. Hitler, the pragmatist, took one look at these two operations and decided that Group von Buchmann had the better chance of succeeding. So, decided to reinforce that with the 254th Infantry Division and ordered it to advance. Besides, Volkov had an aluminum plant and power station. A victory here would allow him to cut off Leningrad from supplies via Ladoga. The city, renamed after Lenin, would still fall. An army group center would then be reinforced, so it could knock Moscow out of the war. Not perfect, but things were falling into place. On came Bookman's group, now reinforced. By November 8th, his advanced units were coming close to the southern approaches of Volkov. This meant that the Soviet 4th and 54th armies were pushed aside and apart. 
the German right flank was doing a bit better and seemed about to enter the city from the east. But then came another Soviet counterattack, this one by the 310th Rifle Division, a unit no German had ever heard of before and had not known was in the area until it was shooting at them. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, here we are at the end of another year of the History of World War II podcast. And to celebrate my wife not leaving me over this yet, and my not mixing up the people I work with with people from the 1940s, it's time for another year-end giveaway. This is open to everyone, and I'm offering up a Harry's shaving set. But this one is their holiday special. It's even nicer than the one I have. Did I think about switching them out? Not that you know. So to enter, all you have to do is email me to wwiipodcast at gmail.com and put I Love Harry's in the subject line. Then probably the show right after Christmas, the Harris family will do the drawing. So good luck to everyone. And again, thank you for listening. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.